0: Welcome to Top Shelf at the Merrick Library with your host, Carol Ann Tack. Welcome to Top Shelf at Merrick Library. I am your host, Carol Ann Tack, and I thank you all for joining me. Now, listeners, as you know, I have talked about this often enough. Book galleys show up for me, and this one box came in for me from my friends at Tor Nightfire, and inside was an unbelievable debut by today's guest, Johnny Compton. His book, The Spite House is on all the must-read and must-read horror lists for 2023, and Goodreads just named The Spite House one of the most- Anticipated Horror Novels 2023. Hooray! Johnny Compton, welcome to Top Shelf at Merrick Library. Thank you so much for joining me and the listeners to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me on. I've been looking forward to this since it's been put on my calendar. I'm so excited. We're really doing this. We're finally doing this. We're
0: finally doing this. And instead of waving at you across social media, I can actually (laughs) see you on my screen, which is amazing. And I just want to tell listeners a little bit about our Our guest, the incredible Johnny Compton, is a San Antonio-based author whose short stories have appeared in several publications, including Pseudopod, Strange Horizons, and the No Sleep Podcast. His fascination with frightening fiction started when his kindergarten teacher played a recording of the classic ghost story, the Golden Arm for her class. And if you ever get a chance out there, you must listen to the Jackie Torrance recitation of that. Johnny Compton is also creator and host of the podcast Healthy Fears, which is fantastic. I urge you all to find that after you listen to this podcast interview, of course. And that Healthy Fears podcast is available on most podcasting platforms. The Spite House is Johnny Compton's debut novel, and it's scared the heck out of me and that plus johnny's gripping prose and i mean gripping makes the spite house so much more than a haunted house story and everyone's 2023 must read book and before we even get to the book johnny i have to talk about kindergarten johnny compton (sighs) hearing the golden arm for the first time tell me about
1: that I had just moved to Mississippi from Hawaii, which I don't remember Hawaii basically at all. I was much too young, but I was in Mississippi. It was my first year in Mississippi, so it's kind of a strange land. I would find out later on that Mississippi has a lot of ghosts, a lot of hauntings surrounding it. I was on the Gulf Coast. My kindergarten teacher, Mrs. Nina RIP, she played this for the class, which I think looking back on it seems unconventional, playing this uh, recording of a ghost story. (laughs) Yeah, for a bunch of five-year-olds and, and such, but at the time, it just was one of those things that it felt like. I guess this is this is what we're doing. Listen to it was just blown away. It was so creepy. The idea of somebody returning from the grave, I'd never heard anything like that before. I wasn't watching scary movies that young or anything along those lines. And immediately afterward, I, I couldn't get enough of it. So that really legitimately kickstarted a lifelong, dare I say, obsession with seeking the sensation of fear in different ways. And whether it's in a movie, whether it's in a book, whether it's sitting around a campfire, we had a lot of little campfire stories at different events when I was a kid. And you'd hear ghost stories, you'd hear sometimes just the adults would retell a uh, story that just recap an episode of The Twilight Zone. I remember One of my friends named Jamie, his mother, during a campout we had at some point, school event, just recapping the episode of The Twilight Zone with a hitchhiker.
0: That's a good one.
1: An amazing episode. Creepy. I had never seen it before. I was extremely young at the time. And all of these things just burrowing into my brain and constantly reigniting this desire in me to find the next scary thing. And that's been my pursuit in one way or another. And then at some point, I wanted to change that to a pursuit of actually writing and creating the next scary thing
0: so as you're saying, something clicks for you and you think, wow, you know what? I want to do that. And then not only do I want to, but I can do that. So I love hearing that. And obviously me and the many fans you have and will have after this book hits shelves are very grateful to your kindergarten teacher. So from your website back in 2021, it dovetails with this kindergarten experience. There's a piece you wrote about Stephen King's Night Shift, which, by the way, I have that original crazy good cover paperback still in my house because I bought it when it came out. You have this incredible quote, and you say the word horror, after all, describes a feeling, a sensation. Horror as a genre can be just as effective when focusing on human emotion as when focusing on carnage and the supernatural. I love everything about how you sum up horror, that is perfect. And by the way, that's exactly what you do right here in this bite house, which hello segue onto the reason that we are here. But I do love that quote which when you're talking about the kindergarten Johnny Compton listening to that it's very evocative the emotions we get that sensation we get and then horror fans even thriller fans are constantly looking for that next thrill that becomes an addiction to that feeling that you get in your stomach it's a beautiful quote and if it was a little shorter I could probably get it on a t-shirt
1: <laughs> <laughs> thank you I've considered that whenever I write almost anything I'm sure I have some shorts stories. stories out there that are a lot more direct and blunt in terms of their delivery and every story has its own dynamic and purpose but i've used this before and i always want to make sure i give credit where it's due i've never heard the phrase prior to reading will erickson who operates the blog too much horror fiction and he used the phrase heartbreak horror which I had never heard before until I'd read it on one of his articles. And at the time, some stories I'd written and published, I thought that really encapsulates what I intend to achieve oftentimes. Again, not necessarily every time, but I do think that that's a key component of the Spite House is there's a lot of heart and heartbreak in the story. And it's tethered and interwoven with the horror, I think, hopefully very effectively, making you not just feel fear because there's a ghost in certain parts of the house, but because you're worried about... What's going to happen with these family members? You're worried about what's going to happen with these characters that hopefully you're coming to love and appreciate and want the best for. You even, ideally, worried a little bit about the existence and the state of this ghost. I've been fascinated by that as well as a kid. And since listening to The Golden Arm, the idea of being a ghost or being a restless spirit a restless corpse rising from the grave, it's all very macabre and, and grim, but also... There's something very sad and dismal about that kind of existence as well. And I think that that gets overlooked sometimes. So I try to convey that as well in the story.
0: And you do. And that's exactly right. It's unfinished business. The ghost can't rest. You can't rest. I mean, we walk around in life with unfinished or unsettled things. So when I think about carrying that into the next whatever happens next, you know, there's a reason people say, when I come back, I'm going to haunt you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, yes. The place I used to work for, briefly, allegedly, has a ghost in one of its buildings, which is odd to kind of think about because it's a big corporate office. But the people who've talked about having allegedly seen this ghost, and I am i wasn't there for any of these events, so I try not to make people out to be a liar or right, right. claim that there's any veracity to it one way or the other. I'm just reporting what I've heard. They say that they've seen this ghost rush to the elevators to get there ahead of them and close the elevator doors rudely. And then the elevator doors, when they reopen, because they're pushing the button to reopen it, nobody's in the elevator car anymore. I've heard people say that they've heard the ghost at a cubicle late night tapping keyboards. And I do think, I mean, I kind of joked about it whenever I used to talk about it at work, but I also think that's really sad. Like you said, it's the unfinished business, right? I, I would hate of all the places, if I ended up becoming a spirit and I have to look around, i who would want to haunt their nine to five? That would be like just the worst afterlife you could (laughs) imagine short of actual hell. I'm going to constantly be late to work. I'm rushing to the elevator. I'm working late. Every time they report these stories, it's always really early or really late. So you're getting there before everybody you're leaving after everybody you're putting in the overtime hours, even in your afterlife, that would just be awful. Like just give, deliver me anywhere else, please. Any of the other places I've been to in my life, other than just, putting me at my desk and having me work for the entirety of my afterlife.
0: So skeptics would say, well, that's a good excuse for being late that they, you know, yeah. that the ghost jumped the elevator ahead of them, right? That's what skeptics would say. I, however, feel like that's a spite corporation. Maybe you've got there instead of a spite house, uh, Maybe. Right. So having said that, this ghost, this spirit is really pissed about something and can't get free. And so, yes, is trapped. So somebody needs to go in there and release that poor entity that's running around, which brings us to the spite house. I love the expression. As soon as I saw it on the cover, I knew exactly what it meant. I don't know if that's just me being a horror person or not, but I knew exactly what it meant. The word spite, when you look that up in the dictionary, oh, man, it's malevolent. It's mean. It's all of these things. When you, all right, before I even get to that, tell listeners about the Spite House because everyone's like, all right, tell us about the book already.
1: The Spite House is about a man and his two daughters, Eric, his oldest daughter, Des, and his younger daughter, Stacy. They're on the run for reasons unknown that we come to discover as the book progresses. They're coming from the Northeast, navigating through Texas on their way across the country, basically fleeing, again, something that's mysterious at first. They read an article, or Eric does, about a very rich, very not quite eccentric, but also mysterious in her own right, very wealthy person who wants somebody to stay in a house that she owns in order to prove that the spirits there exist. She doesn't explain exactly what her purpose is, her reasoning is for wanting that. We find that out as well as the book goes along. And he agrees because he's desperate for a place to stay and some money. and a more stable situation. And she's promising to pay him a fortune as soon as his job is completed, which is just to capture what's happening in the house and provide enough evidence that this is a real haunting for her to then take her next steps, whatever those may be. So I'm leaving some of this, obviously, to be determined or to be discovered whenever you read the book. But from there, Eric goes into the house. It is a spite house, which is a real-world phenomenon, somebody building a house specifically just to spite someone or something else. He goes in and discovers, obviously, that it is indeed haunted. I, I don't mind divulging that. I have written one of those haunted house stories that, and one of those ghost stories. There's not a lot of uncertainty around whether or not the supernatural is actually at play. We find that out. Quite early. And that was deliberate on my part. I didn't want it to be something where we're kind of lingering on the idea of maybe or maybe not. This might be a spirit. It might be some people's imagination. It might just be rumors, what have you. I love stories like that, but that was just not the intent. That was not the objective of this. So I wanted to get right to it if we're going to do that. So that in a nutshell, I think is uh, The Spite House. It's just, I'm personally, when I reread it and I've had to reread it several times, obviously through the editing process, the rewriting process, there are some scenes and some moments that I'm still charged up about. Like I said, I've always been chasing that sensation of frightening people. And there are moments that I've captured here that I thought this is really effective. And it kind of brings me back to my childhood a little bit of staring down a hallway and wondering what's going to be at the end of the hallway. If you can't quite see what's there, if it's too dark and really trying to bring those emotions back.
0: So would you say that's the inspiration that you <clears throat> wanted to write a book that brought those emotions back to you and then thereby me? I am glad you cut right to the chase, so to speak. Your listeners and readers will find out why I say the chase. Um, was this story in your mind to write while you've been podcasting and writing short stories? Was any part of this book a short story at one time?
1: It was not, which is a great question, though, because I have written or attempted to write prior to this, a few novels that did start off initially as short stories. And in fact, I wrote a short story that never saw the light of day and tried to turn that into a novel for several years. And that probably derailed my entire ambition as a novelist because I could not ever get that right. And I restarted that one, I think three or four times. And I got as far as about 50 or 60,000 words at one point and blew it up and just completely started all over, which for anybody who's not understanding the structure of that, I mean, 50 or 60,000 words is at minimum novella length, you could probably publish that as a very, very short novel, even potentially. So I was that far along. And then I realized, oh my gosh, I'm only about a, a quarter of a way into the story, apparently, though. And so I'm either going to try to write my debut as this massive book that nobody's really going to pick up for a debut author, probably, or I need to reconfigure how I'm doing this, blew it up, tried to start it all over again, and then just kind of realized at a certain point I needed to move on. But that does happen where you start off with a short story, you expand it into something longer. That didn't happen in this case. I really just wanted to capture the sensation of the old house that everybody in the neighborhood kind of knows about or that everybody in town kind of knows about and everybody just stays away from. And... That's something that growing up in Mississippi, very fascinating to me. There were our share of houses like that, sometimes houses that you couldn't even see. So I had a friend named David who told me that Bloody Mary lived in this big, decrepit house that was very near uh, to my... And I was terrified of Bloody Mary as a kid, (laughs) um, even though I was also like completely fascinated and obsessed with the concept of Bloody Mary. But he told me that Bloody Mary lived in this house that we all were aware of. And then there was another house that I never saw. might not have ever existed, but there was a park near my house. And there was a a thicket of trees. Didn't know how deep it went, but you would allegedly be able to walk through it. And eventually, you would find a two-story house far in the back that had been abandoned for a long time and was supposed to be incredibly haunted and the scariest thing. And if you found it, the stories, obviously, kids who did find it were never seen again and such like that. Well, if they were never seen again, how does anybody know? Right. But we didn't question any. Of that this was when it would have been around when I was 10 or so, 10 to 12 range, and you start hearing about these things. I had that definitely in mind. There's a moment in the Spite House where two characters are walking through the woods and they're walking to kind of a secreted location. And I was thinking of that, that old park in Mississippi where allegedly, which I never was even close to brave enough to, to try it, but allegedly you could walk through and eventually find this supposedly hidden, haunted, very dangerous house and all those kind of things, trying to capture those vibes. Those were definitely fresh in my mind when I was writing the spite house.
0: And to this day, I will not use Mary's expression, nor will I use Candyman's expression. I mean, there are certain things. You can be (sighs) as old as you want. You're never saying those things. I'm just sorry. That's just the way it is.
1: Sincerely. Sincerely. Candyman freaked me out when I was a kid too. There was a brief time where I I was the only person at my school, it seemed, among my peers who had seen the commercials. (laughs) And so I went through like a week of that and At some point I was like, is this some weird signal being beamed just to me? And I'm the only person seeing this and I'm being haunted by this weird movie that looked like nothing I'd ever seen before based on the commercials and is also centered around this thing, this concept of somebody haunting the mirror and you don't say their name in the mirror, which is directly tethered to, I mean, I, I had repeated nightmares, repeated uh, recurring nightmares of being trapped in the bloody Mary house that I thought she lived in. And I would be lost in the house and I'd be wandering through trying to find my way out and then eventually i would accidentally walk into like her basically like her central bedchamber where she'd be sitting on a throne with a veil over her face and then i would wake up every single time right before she noticed me and turned her head to look at me and then i would always wake up and i had that dream over and over again when i was a kid so candy man and bloody mary being related and me being the only person at school seemingly who noticed that that freaked me out i was in my head about that and having a lot of sleepless nights about that for a week
0: and, of course, you don't want to tell your, your parents, your guardians, anyone, because then they will ban you from watching any horror movie ever. <laughs> so learn yes, to keep seriously. That. We do learn to keep that hidden, us horror folk at young ages. <laughs> you don't want to tell your parents that you watched, you know, whatever show, whatever book you read or Stephen King. But, you know, my mom was like a big horror person. She's like, read it all. Do whatever you want. I love yeah. this quote. There's a great quote from author Clay McLeod Chapman. And he says, Johnny Compton is the new architect of terror. Now that goes on a t-shirt, <laughs> Mr. Compton. That's
1: the <laughs> no. I mean, it's, I, I, Clay is awesome. I, I got a chance to meet Clay last year, and he's a fantastic person. That is such high praise. It's one of those things I, I kind of have to filter that compliments out of my brain. I don't read any negative criticism and I, it's almost more important for me not to read anything positive <laughs> because it, I'm a person who absorbs and feels that pressure of, man, I, I hope, not only does this book, I not not only hope that this lives up to the expectation, but dang, I got to write another and I, hopefully another and another afterward, right? I had one in the chamber and that's it. I had one great novel. If it, indeed this is great, you don't want to doubt yourself. Like you said, there's possibilities of imposter syndrome. We talked about that previously but, you know, everybody kind of suffers through that. And I I know that's a limitation of myself. And so I try to do everything I can to prevent letting any of that get to me, which sometimes means as much as I appreciate the compliments and and I can't believe I'm living my dream right now, it's it's still a pinch me and I feel like I'm going to wake up at any moment situation. I also have to kind of make sure I don't look at too much of that or read too much of that because I, (laughs) the architect, of, of Terrors well, is kind of a about a
0: haunted I'm, house, right? So I feel like this. Yes, a exactly. It's
1: so book. fitting and it's, I mean, it's a great title I, I wish I had the ego to just put that on a t-shirt and walk around like that and be like Yep, yeah, that's me. I'm the architect We're gonna I mean, it, it sounds terrifying, but the minute I start to believe my own hype is going to be the minute I come crashing down. So right. as long as I keep that at bay, then hopefully I'll remain successful And
0: finding that middle ground is probably very very hard and it's very challenging He also says that the novel The Spite House, and I love that he puts the spite house in the category with these three other novels. He talks about the Spite House joins and River Siddons, who not a lot of people know about the house next door. Another Whoa, Nelly. Uh, Robert Morasco's Burnt Offerings. Michael McDowell's The Elementals. You're reconfiguring the blueprint of a haunted house story in order to fashion something fresh and frightening. Now, these are, I don't want to say old time horror because that makes me sound like I'm like the crypt keeper. <laughs> Right, But he's not wrong and frightening really is correct because it's not just a scary haunted house book, but there are other horrific things happening in around and to the Ross family and man they are just trying to live their lives. And I think of one scene in particular. It's at the beginning of the book, and this is not a spoiler, but the sisters are having pancakes at the diner, and there's a pivotal scene for everything that comes next, but the sister, Des, is noticing people looking at them in this diner, and that's another set of horror situation for them and i that's beautifully written beautifully done because now the reader really is worrying about the horror of this house concerned about uh, stacy love stacy uh, and then now you've got to deal with the awful humanity in the diner tell me about writing that scene
1: when i first came up with that, I did try to think of a situation of just trying to convey the idea. You're outside of maybe your comfort zone, wherever that may be, whoever you may be. And I'm a black man. I've been to different places where I look around and you think, well, I don't see any other people of color in general at all. And that's not always obviously indicative of anything negative that's going to happen. But you are just cognizant of it. If something did happen, yes, you're aware. If something did happen, who would have my back? Who might not? Would people just kind of turn and look away? But that can happen anywhere, right? I've also had that feeling I'm living in San Antonio, technically a big city, and I've been to other places up north, where I've kind of been fortunate enough to travel, or out west even, and I'll maybe take the transit, and I realize again I'm kind of outside of my comfort zone. And now it doesn't matter who's around me in terms of ethnic background or racial background or anything like that. It's more about it. can they tell that I'm a bumpkin for lack of a better term? We're a legitimate city here, but at the same time, mass transit in Texas in general isn't exactly something that is going to be to the front of your mind if you're thinking about Dallas, Houston, what have you. We have buses, but we don't have like the subway. We don't have the train. You go places where you have the train and the collection of people, the claustrophobia is different. The way people are maybe looking at you, but everybody's also trying to pay attention to themselves and look away. That's different. If something happens, there's this element of sometimes people wanting to mind their own business completely and just want to get away from this, even if somebody's over here getting berated, attacked, anything like that happening, or at least that's what you see in worst case scenario videos online or something like that, right? That's definitely not the typical experience, but you're worried about this being the worst case scenario, then worried about feeling that sensation of, can they tell I'm not from around here and is that going to make me the target? So all of these different things were in mind whenever I was writing that for Stacy and Des at the Diner, and particularly because of their situation, not only are they two black girls in an environment that's different from what they're accustomed to because they come from more of the DC area in the story. So they're now in a place where it's going through Des's mind. I'm very unfamiliar territory in terms of racial makeup. There's not anybody around who looks like me anymore, but also because she knows we're on the run. She's aware of the situation that Stacy's not aware of. So, Even beyond that, she's also wondering and worried, could it be possible that we've made the news and people might have recognized my face from a news story that they read online, heard about me on a true crime podcast or anything about this missing person, anything that could be taking place there. And so she's got that additional paranoia built up. I'm so glad you like that scene. Like you said, it comes early in the book and it hopefully establishes, like you said, not just the idea of supernatural horror and the idea of ghosts, but also the idea of being paranoid around the living and the breathing people that you're around. When I was a kid and fascinated with ghosts and also up late at night, terrified of whatever's hiding in the shadows, whenever I was staying with my grandmother, RIP, my grandmother would always say, it ain't the dead you got to worry about. It's the living ones that you got to be afraid of. So I would keep that in mind too. And anytime I get an opportunity to work something in, that reflects that life lesson that I learned from my grandmother.
0: And that scene in particular, I actually have a quote from that scene because there's something that you do there, this alchemy that works, brings the reader in, I, gosh, I was, poor Des, she's got, that scene, she's got every single thing on her shoulders, the world is on her shoulders, so not only is she trying to navigate just ordering waffles, just having, trying to have breakfast with her sister, her dad's doing, well, we can't say, but then... As they're trying to navigate humanity for the love of Pete in this diner, there's an exchange between the two sisters, right? So, Stacy and Des, they, there's a picture of the house. The father shows them the picture, and Stacy says, If you're worried about that house because it looks weird, you don't have to be. It's okay. I figured out why it's so skinny. Yeah, Des asks, Why? And Stacy snickers and says, Because it hasn't had enough to eat. And then she laughed like she told the best joke she'd ever tell.
1: Well. I'm so glad you liked that. I, when I wrote that line, I did feel like I had one. I got to admit there. I was like, That's oh, this lot, this sets the stage. <laughs> and, and you mentioned Clay brought up those three fantastic books that I can't even, it's mind blowing still to, to be put in the categories of The House Next Door, Burnt Offerings, The Elementals, which is absolutely one of my favorite novels of all time.
0: Mind-blowing, yes.
1: And all of those, that sense of the house is not only haunted, but in its own way alive and... Again, going back to when I was a kid, that feeling of the scary houses didn't just have the sense of you might see a ghost. You go in and a part of you is never going to be the same again. And you'd read stories about people would go into a certain house. I remember reading short stories and lore and legends, people going into a certain house. And if they did come back out alive, their hair has been turned white because of what they saw and they were never the same again. And they were a quaking wreck. They're always nervous. They're always anxious. They are paranoid. They can't stand being in the dark. And it's this shoulder. life-altering event. Yes. And so, I wanted to convey that as well. That sense of the house is, in one way or another, some, sometimes it's more literal, sometimes it's more figurative. Either way, the to me, some of the most frightening haunted houses are the ones that, in some way or another, are consuming the people who have to stay in them too long. So, when I wrote that line, I and also, it's, it's always fun to write a kid saying something creepy, especially when they're kind of innocent. She doesn't really know what she said is creepy. She thinks it's a legit funny joke. When I landed on that line, I thought this is perfect because it still maintains her innocence. But at the same time, she's saying something very disturbing.
0: Yeah. I mean, disturbing blood curdling to me, you know, and that's when I fell 100% in love. And I thought, oh my gosh, this book, which then when you read that on the page, and then I immediately flipped back to the jacket with the chills running up and down my arms because the reader is right there with Stacey in that conversation. Tell me about this cover. Did you have a bunch to choose from? Was this the one you said, holy moly, that's the one? What's this like for you picking it? Was there other choices?
1: There were no other choices, and we thankfully didn't need one. I mean, they told me, hey, we're going to reveal your cover. And I was actually at StokerCon, and I hadn't huh? seen the cover yet. And then I ran into some folks from Poor Night Fire who are incredible, just super gracious, Recognized me, which was already weird. Um, kind of, <laughs> that was my first toker con. I didn't know anybody. So they were letting me uh, bum around and hang out with them. And that's where I got to meet Clay later on that day. I get my emails in and I see the covers come in really the only choices there were where there were some different fonts that they presented and they were all good, but I mean the one that we fell in love with was this kind of decayed yellow, spiky, thorny. So it, it looks like something's kind of electrified and sharp at the same time. I fell in love with that. The house, I couldn't believe how well the artist captured the house. And
0: yeah, Jeffrey. I'm thank you. Yeah. Thank
1: you. He's the artist and the the designer as well for the cover. They just did a superb job capturing the actual look of the house because in my head I was thinking, I wonder if they're just going to put a generic haunted house on the cover, and then I might have some feedback about, hey, there's a specific look of the house as it's presented in the book, and we want to make sure that we capture it. I was anticipating having that feedback. Didn't have to say that at all. I saw this thing, and I couldn't believe how perfectly it's rendered. It looks as bizarre as the house should and as intimidating and it's on top of the hill and the trees are behind it. And I was like, Oh, they, they didn't just throw a cover together. They legitimately read the book and read what this house is supposed to look like. And I can't say enough about how good this cover is. And then the little touch of Eric, Eric, and des and stacy in the bottom right corner Oh my goodness oh i love that so much i love when i I saw that i just immediately fell in love with the entire cover because it captures the house is terrifying but this is also a story about this family and this father and his daughters and it's this thing that is looming over them this terrifying intimidating thing that is looming over them It, it captures everything i wanted to get into and get at about with the story
0: The cover art is by Jeffrey Allen Love and then the cover design is by Esther S. Kim and man, the combination of these two creatives working to do this cover. And then what I really love, the back of the book is this just blackness with these trees sort of coming. I, well, listen, I almost wish this was 3D. (laughs)
1: I'm still just. I'm so fortunate the time and the care and the the creative energy, like you mentioned that they put into it. They didn't just throw something together. And it's a difficult job to create cover art as it is. So it's something I can't do. So I'm going to be appreciative of what I can get. But I mean, I think this is a masterpiece. If you hung up this poster on your wall, it would just be one of the best. If you have, you know, if I, ha- I have a room full of, you can't see it quite right now through the camera. If I turned it around, there's just frightening pictures all over my walls. And if it wouldn't be the height of egotism <laughs> to put up my own book cover there. if this was somebody else's book cover, I absolutely would would adorn my wall with this. I can't do it for my own book because that would just seem like just hubris. That would signal my downfall. That would be the moment that my tragic fall <laughs> would come to pass.
0: She really, uh, Esther S. Kim, the way she's designed the letters to sort of flow down the mountain, they kind of look electrified, but they also look a little amoeba-like and little yes. like There's all kinds of Things going on with that, and whoa, that is like perfectly creepy, perfectly book cover scary. Was The Spite House the original title of the book?
1: No, it was not. And this is just shows you how much luck kind of goes into these things. And I always try to remember that because you never know. Because I was originally, when I was working on it, I was going to call it The Narrow House. Because so I thought The Spite House was too on the nose. I was like, I'm writing a book about spite houses. After I would read an article about spite houses, and that's the key thing that ignited this entire enterprise. And I thought that's too on the nose. So I was originally going to call it The Narrow House. The thing that kind of planted the seed for me not to start calling it the narrow house was when I finally got around to reading the book of Lovecraft Country. There's a house in there called the narrow house and I was like, well, then maybe I shouldn't. This too similar. And so then I started coming back around to the spite house and my agent has told me, he's like, man, the spite I can't believe you thought about calling it anything other than the spite house. It's such a great, almost shock title. Most people don't know what a spite house is. So if they read that and you see these two words together, you think of what a house is supposed to be. And then you think of spite and these things seem to be in direct conflict with one another. Hopefully I'm not living in a house that's full of spikes. What does this mean? And then you find out what it actually is. It works so well. It's such a visually startling thing just to read those words together. And I almost called it the narrow house. What an idiot. Um, That would have been such a disaster. My agent told me, he said, it leapt off the screen when he was looking through a slush pile. He's a spite house. What could that even mean? And that's one of the reasons why he jumped into reading my book, maybe ahead of some others. And that started me on this path.
0: And it's not something you're going to fit she- in the Zillow description of the... <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, exactly. Exactly. I mean, out of anything it could be, right? The adjective to put before the word house, <laughs> you know, spite is not something that, that's commonly out there for sure. Narrow, you might, you might hear somebody describe a house as narrow, and it's not really as... As effective by any stretch, so I I almost blew that. And thankfully, I did not.
0: When you're designing the physical design of the house itself, the design of the Spite House, you made it a little too visual for me, and a little too—I don't even know what the word is—but I was there. I was in that downstairs foyer. I was on the floating hall. I mean, all of those things. And I'm, I'm getting a little creeped out as I'm thinking about what's inside the house. <laughs> How does that design process come to you? I don't want to give away too much, but is that something that sort of, you said, well, let me add this. And then I'm going, oh, and well, now I'm going to add that. Like, what what is that? What, what, like, boil, boil, toil and trouble? What are you cooking up there?
1: <laughs> that is... Man, I, I love these questions. That is a product, speaking here about the actual architecture of the house, I actually merged a few different real-world spite houses together. There's a spite house in Boston, I believe, called the Skinny House. So that's the primary basis on this. I thought this is fascinating. It's thin, it's four stories tall, I believe, and I was like, this is perfect. This is exactly what I kind of want. There's a different spite house, and I can't remember where exactly this one's located or the name, but so the floating hallway came from that because it has this overhang Um, That's part of it because of where it's built. The only reason they could build it that way, that's that's the fascinating about these spite houses. They have to have these oddball architectural features sometimes because the only way to build them where they want to build them in order to spite somebody else is to make them a crooked house in a, a bizarre shape. And so I took part of it from that as well. From there, I just, you know, putting it on the hill and kind of why it's set there and overlooking things, and then you get into the emotional element of who's living in this house. So then like you said, even like where I'm placing certain floors and mm-hmm. where why things are where they are. That gets into the person who built the spite house, which we find out in the story why they built it, what their backstory is. And so, and then who else comes to live there? And so trying to shape it based on those ideas. And I did have to go back and that was one of the things in the midst of all my rewriting before I even submitted it to an agent. It was one of those things. So I got to get this exactly right. I got to remember what floor is which, what floors got changed after certain life events happened that changed the residency of the house. I got to make sure I'm getting all of this right. And why would this, You know, you have to explain it. I wanted this feature. I wanted the floating hallway there. But why would that even be built this way if it's on this hill? It's not strictly necessary the way it would be for the house I'm taking inspiration from. So now I have to come up for a reason why. Then I thought, A, this works from a storytelling standpoint. B, this also is going to make for a really cool place to set some very scary events. And as the story progresses, it becomes one of the most important features of the house and one of the most important locations of really any location throughout the story, whether it's in the house or some of the different houses that the characters go to and throughout town.
0: I'm loving listening to this because I feel like I'm listening to a mad scientist.
1: <laughs> Sorry. Yes, I know. I, I can I can go on. It, no, it's just, but it, this I think is...
0: it's amazing that you plotted this so perfectly. It's diabolical. There are scenes that take yeah. place in certain rooms in the house. That was so scary and terrifying. And I know a lot of people use these same words, scary, terrifying, it's hard. I didn't want to get up from my chair.
1: I'll tell you this. I love that she used the word diabolical. That's, <laughs> I, I, that's such a compliment. Thank you so much. And I've got to admit, when I, the few positive things that I've really kind of latched onto or have been a couple of times people have said that I gave them nightmares And I was just like, this is exactly what I've wanted to do for my entire life because I've had these nightmares and I know it's, it's not always fun, but then it's just this Strange energy. I I would always wake up from my nightmares about Bloody Mary, and I would never think, "Oh, now I'm, I've got to avoid thinking about her." Now I would almost get more obsessed with the idea of, "Okay, what would I do to actually get out of the house the next time I have this nightmare?" I kind of always wanted to instill that in people, and so the the idea that I've written something that maybe people find diabolical didn't made you not want to get up from your chair, makes you question the shadows in your own house, or gives you nightmares. I am over the moon that that's the the reaction I'm giving to some people. Smile
0: right now, for heaven's sake! (laughs) (laughs) You're like.
1: I mean, this is. Oh, goodness. That's what's Uh, happening right now.
0: We mentioned it earlier. I must say, if you are an audiobook listener, the audiobook is just as terrifyingly terrific as the hard copy. It's narrated brilliantly by Adam Lazar White. He is the narrator of all things Sean Cosby. essay Cosby's book floored yes. me because I recognized his voice when I read Razorblade Tears and Blacktop Wasteland. So to have him, his narrating voice is just gorgeous. It's malefluous. He's got everything. Were you part of the process in selecting him? And were you like, listen, there's only one person in my mind for this?
1: I was definitely part of that process, fortunate enough to be. We had some great candidates. But once I heard his delivery on it, and I had listened to the audiobook for Razor Blade Tears already. And like you said, he does all of S.A. Cosby's work. And I kind of was a little starstruck. <laughs> it's funny because I got to meet Sean at BoucherCon. And I mentioned to him, Adam's going to do my audio book. I can't believe this. Sean relayed, you know, Adam used to be on the soaps when he was younger. And speaking again to my grandmother. I know about that because whenever I'd stay with her in summers or different seasons, you wake up in the morning, you watch Price is Right with my grandma and Then afterward, Young and the Restless would come on and all of her soaps. And I'd end up watching part of that with her just because I'm hanging out with grandma. Why not? You know, we're still having some breakfast and whatnot. So that's where I still know him in my mind from because you don't let go of some of those things. And so he is that legend as well in that respect. So doubly so was the star power element there for me. So yeah, getting him to read my work and read my characters and bring them all to life and bring the scares life and the closing line of the book is something that i'm extremely happy with and i'm very excited to hear him deliver those lines i think that's going to probably be something somewhat emotional for me whenever i'm listening to him actually get to that point and we're at the end and this is my debut and i've wanted to do this my whole life and i finally got there that's going to be something i probably sit back and maybe treat myself to a glass of wine i think if nothing else Ever positive again happens to me in my life, I, I I did this. I had this moment.
0: I will now re-listen to the ending of the book and have my own <laughs> glass of wine and toast with you, Johnny Compton, because, oh my gosh, I that's a wonderful thing that you just shared with all of us. I am so appreciative that you took the time today to talk with me and the listeners. This was so joy. I, I don't know. How do you say I was joyful to talk about a horror book?
1: <laughs> I hope it comes across that way, though, because I saw a meme earlier that basically said the contrast of horror writers, what we write but versus what our demeanor is oftentimes. Yeah, we're a lot of the time. We're very jovial, happy people who just happen to have insane, dark ideas in our head. So and so I hope this was a joyful, yes, diabolical and in our gleeful when we hear the word diabolical <laughs> and yet we're very friendly, happy people. So I hope this was, I I feel like it was a a joyful conversation. I really appreciate you having me on. This was a blast. This was terrific.
0: This is so much fun. Now the train is about to leave the station for your book tour. And I mean, it's going to be a bullet train right through. Where can readers find you on social media or online for all of your upcoming events? And they are legion these upcoming events.
1: Yes, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, at Rights is the tag. You can also find me on my website, johnnycompton.com. And I have an events page there. So it lists all of my upcoming events and also any of my speaking engagements that I've had virtually as well. So interviews like this also listed there.
0: Listeners, you are going to want to get on this train with Johnny Compton. You really are. trust me on this one. Any books you would like to recommend other than the three that we talked about earlier, anything you would like to recommend or podcasts or something else that you would like to share with listeners?
1: I love that you mentioned podcasts. So books, definitely Tracy Cross, Root Work. Fantastic. Southern Gothic. It's something I think that is very undervalued in terms of what root work actually is. If you're unfamiliar with that, maybe find a definition for it, but then I would encourage you to just try to find as little about it as possible and then read the book because it goes into what root work actually is. It's a a more so of a novella, but it's a terrific read. My favorite book of, I think, the last three years or so is Zin E. Rockland's Flowers for the Sea. Anytime I get a chance to praise that book, I'm going to do so because it's the one I've reread the most in the last handful of years. As far as podcasts, there's one that I've just gotten into Rumors. Dark Lore from India is the full title, and I am just blown away by that one. That is everything I've been chasing in a podcast. I listen to a lot of different podcasts, and I like a lot of them, but it's very difficult for me to find the exact strike zone of what I'm looking for in terms of something that is talking about the old lore and relaying information that I've never heard of. And the young lady who narrates and, and writes and, and produces the podcast, she is not giving any kind of filler. She just, she's not really trying to make it funny where it doesn't need to be funny or any of these things that happen that I totally understand why people do that. But she is just, I've got a lot of information to give you, a lot of backstory, a lot of fascinating, frightening, intense history. And she compresses it all into these episodes, makes it digestible and makes you want to go out and find out so much more about everything she's telling you about. So I absolutely have fallen in love with that podcast. It's my new favorite. I can't wait for a new episode to drop and I I drop everything I'm doing as soon as I, I see a new episode in my feed.
0: Well, now that seems to be in my strike zone. So I think after this, I am going to go find rumors and dark law from India on the podcast. I will put the links in for both the books that you mentioned and the podcast. And speaking of the strike zone. This book, The Spite House, by today's guest, Johnny Compton, is totally in my strike zone. You could hear me gleefully talk about the horrific scenes and the fact that I couldn't leave my chair with the joyful yet diabolical Johnny Compton. Uh, now now, i that's just going to be my tagline when it comes to you. The book hit shelves on February
1: 7th. 7th. February 7th
0: listeners, grab a copy at your local library, although I doubt it'll be on shelves for very long, or please go buy it at your local independent bookstore. As if you couldn't guess enough, The Spite House is published by Tor Nightfire. And there is a quote by Daphne Durham, who is the editor of The Spite House. And all I will say is, the story is as alive as the house itself. And oh, is it hungry.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: I love that. Uh, Johnny Compton, I thank you so much for joining me and the listeners of Merrick Library's Top Shelf Podcast. This was such a blast. I thank you so much for joining me. Oh my gosh.
1: Thank you for having me on. This was fantastic. I fantastic.
0: Hope you will join me for whatever comes next. You know what? Put your grocery list out. Put something out there. i I'll host you for that.
1: Oh, goodness.
0: I'll check back with you in December of 2023 just to say, hey, Johnny, how was your year? I mean, hopefully
1: by December, things will be even better. I mean, by then, I should be done with book two and we'll have some more concrete news about it. Okay. And was- speaking of diabolical, I think, <laughs> I think it's leaning into the diabolical book two, for sure.
0: Oh, my gosh. Listeners. I handed you a book on a silver platter with today's guest, Johnny Compton, for his debut novel, The Spite House.
1: This has been awesome. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much. And listeners, as always, I thank you for joining me today. Remember to follow Top Shelf at Merrick Library on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you find most podcasts. For the latest and the greatest at the Merrick Library, check out our website at MerrickLibrary.org. Special thanks to Merrick Library Director. Dan Chesmere, Assistant Director Diane Bondi, and the Merrick Library Board of Directors for getting us off the ground and on to the airwaves. Until the next time, remember to keep us on your top shelf.